2: This is the GM Shuffle. I actually think the bigger story of Buffalo is nothing to do with Stephon Diggs. It has everything to do with Sean McDermott, and he's going to run the defense. Can he head coach and call plays on the defense and manage the game? We shall see. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and V-CIN. Sin. is Femi Abebefei.
0: Welcome to another edition of the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and Beast And I'm your host, Femi at As always, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer Elliot Bowman with us on the ones and twos. Michael, how are we doing, man? It's an interesting week here in the in June now that we're in this. The NBA and NHL are done, and we kind of turn our attention now to the to the NFL full time now.
2: Well, we do in the NFL full-time, and, you know, NFL ends pretty much this week. Every coaching yep. staff around the league after today, the, the Chiefs actually get their Super Bowl championship rings tonight, and then everybody scurries away for a month-long vacation. So it's going to be you and I creating content, and, of course, we've got our literature and, Liter- uh, and leadership series, which brings me to the point, you know, we were scheduled to uh, talk to Lizzie Gottlieb on Monday and unfortunately, she just couldn't do it because her father, Robert Gottlieb, was in the hospital and he passed away uh, yesterday. He was the ultimate editor of all books. I think he edited over 600 to 700 books Uh and he is probably the greatest editor in our lifetime. And unfortunately, he and Robert Carroll had worked together for over 50 years collaborating on the Carroll books. And, mm-hmm. and he quite couldn't make it to finish the fifth and final volume on LBJ. So our condolences to Lizzie Gottlieb. And hopefully yeah. we can get her back to discuss Turn Every Page, the documentary she did
0: on these two great men. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said, and which even makes Turn Every Page more powerful. I know when doing the preparation for the interview, because like you said, we had it planned for Monday, and I was spending my weekend kind of learning about Lizzie Gottlieb and her father, Robert Gottlieb. And I know she said that initially that he didn't really want to do it, and the, the, she was able to kind of convince him and then his buddy Robert Carroll to go ahead and, and do, the, do the project and stuff. So uh, definitely we'll be viewing that, and also hopefully we do get Lizzie Gottlieb. But our condolences from the GM Shuffle family to Lizzie Gottlieb and the rest of the Gottlieb family after they lose – their father, Robert Gottlieb, earlier this week here. But you mentioned, Michael, how we're doing the leader, literature and leadership series here later on today. Mark Grand Prix of the New York Red Bulls, the president and general manager, will be joining us later on in the podcast. We're excited to talk with him, all things leadership styles. I know he's a big fan of Bill Belichick, the New England Patriots yeah. head coach. So uh, I'm curious to pick his brain about how he's kind of taken some of those Belichick tropes the Patriot way and has sort of kind of implemented that into the organization for the New York Red Bulls.
2: You know, I think what we'll find in talking to Mark is that uh, business and sports, uh, there's a great intersection. And so the Mm -hmm. principles, you know, you think it's football and it doesn't apply to soccer. You think it's football and it doesn't apply to business. It all applies. And I think we'll we'll be able to really scale that to where we understand it, like we did with Matt Selman. I mean, think about it. The Simpsons and football, how does that interconnect in terms of
0: leadership? And yet it really does. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. So that'll become a little bit later on in the podcast. But let's get to what's been happening on the gridiron here. And it's been a busy, busy week in Buffalo. A weird week, one might say, for the Buffalo Bills. The minicamp was this week. And the big news was that wide receiver Stephon Diggs was not in attendance for the Tuesday minicamp. Now, the reporting has been a little bit murky. I'm not entirely sure what to believe with any of this stuff. But head coach Sean McDermott addressed the media earlier this week saying, he was concerned about Stefan Diggs' absence. Stephon Diggs then comes the next day and practices, and then all of a sudden it's, hey, we weren't really concerned. We knew of his whereabouts. We actually gave him the, the excuse to go ahead and miss the mini camp, so it wasn't like it was uh, uh, an unexcused absence. Can you just fill us in on what is going on in Buffalo and, and, and what this might be going forward as we approach training camp next month?
2: Well, I mean, I think, look, you know, it's a situation up there. It's not – they say it's not related to contract, so it must be related to use of offense, style of offense, and how he is going to kind of blend within as they change. I think they're going to in a 12-personnel grouping because they drafted Dalton Kincaid. Obviously, they'll still be in three receivers, but I I think, you know – What happens to a lot of teams is there is frustration when your best player, you know, can't feel like he's making the biggest contribution to the team. So, you know, one thing about the month of June, a lot of these stories get blown out of proportion. I actually think the bigger story in Buffalo is nothing to do with Stephon Diggs. It has everything to do with Sean McDermott, and he's going to run the defense. I think it has everything to do with that. I think ultimately when you see this, you know, he Leslie Frazier left for health reasons or whatever. However, whatever you want to believe, he left for that. So, you know, Sean, instead of hiring someone to replace him, is now taking over to run the defense. And I think Leslie Frazier understood that he was in charge of running the defense, calling the defense. Remember, when it was 13 seconds left to go in that game in Kansas City, Sean took over the play caller because he wanted to win the game. And those play calls, I'm sure, a lot of Buffalo Bill fans would like to have back. So, you know, I I think this is going to be the more interesting story. Can he head coach and call
0: plays on the defense and manage the game? Uh, We we shall see. You mentioned Diggs and the usage maybe being what's the crux of the issue. I mean, he got the ball quite a bit last season. 154 targets, 108 catches, second most receiving yards in his career, the most receiving touchdowns in his career. Is it maybe the Bills are kind of shifting – What they do offensively, you mentioned they're going to go to a 12 personnel team now that they have Dalton Kincaid. But Kincaid, I mean, is he really a traditional tight end, or is he more of one of those those detached guys that's more of a slot kind of tight end that is essentially a kind of a pseudo-wide receiver?
2: I think to me, you know, they need more power in what they do, right? I Mm -hmm. think for the Bills to be able to take that next step, and they were 13 seconds away from doing it two years ago, but to take that next step, they have to have more physicality in both lines. I think that's been the mandate, and I think that's what has to happen. And they can't rely on Josh Allen's skill as a runner to do that. They've got to have that ability to handle power. I mean, they got pushed around by Cincinnati's backup offensive line in the in the, in the divisional round. So they need, to me, I think that. I think what people often confuse is the willingness to run the ball as as it affects analytics right and that has nothing to do with it running the ball is about controlling it i was listening to larry brown he was on a podcast uh which in the next block we must 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 talk about doc Rivers' interview with bill mm. simmons on the simmons podcast i thought it was very revealing but we'll get to that in the next block the 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 thing that Brown was talking about as it relates to analytics, Larry Brown had this great saying. He said, "Look, I, I learned analytics when I was fourteen years old, that you know I knew the difference between a good shot and a bad shot." I knew the difference between a player in foul trouble and a player that wasn't in foul trouble. I knew the difference between the team that leads in rebounding typically helps that self-win. I knew the team that plays the best defense usually wins. So, you know, when you boil down all the analytics, they say, well, you can't run the ball. You've got to throw it. I agree. You've got to throw to score. You've got to make chunk plays. But you've got to control the game, too. And, you gotta, and football, going back to the, the 1920s, is still a game of physicality. It's still a game of who's the most physical will win. It is not a game of float like a butterfly. You know, it's not a game where you 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 have to kind of just play within your skill set. You know, the 49ers, for all that West Coast nonsense, were a physical team when they
0: needed to be. And I think that's what Buffalo needs to get to. It's interesting that you bring up the 49ers, Derek, because recently on a podcast for at the Ringer, George Kittle was talking about how the what's the secret behind... The sauce of the 49ers making explosive plays in the passing game. He said, "Quote about Kyle Shanahan: If he wants to set up a play-action pass or bootleg, he will call a run play that he knows isn't going to work." And I think for a lot of fans, it's like, like, "What do you mean? Why would you ever call a play that's not going to work? Like every play should be the point is to get as many yards as possible and to get points." But sometimes, like we we always have this discussion that football is chess on grass. You got to kind of have to set some things up as well to go ahead then get the big chunk play.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's what I wrote a column for Veasan's uh, Pro Betting Guide, and I talked about play callers. You know, we only talk about play callers when the play's successful, right? Mm-hmm. We never talk about a great play call that gets you out of a bad play. We never talk about a great play call that limits the that limits the 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 negativity within the offense or the adjustment. You know, and I think what Kittle often was saying too is is the fact that Kyle does a great job of attacking the weaknesses within the scheme and tacking the specific adjustments within the scheme. See, Walsh used to say this all the time. Anybody can design run pl- pass plays, but it takes an innovative coach to design the running game. And we often over overlook that because the running game is still, for all the analytical talk, going back to Larry Brown at 14, living in Long Beach, Cal- Long Beach, uh, New York, playing on the Billy Crystal team there, it- it's still a game of... of of we've got to be physical, we've got to play defense, we've got to do all those things. And I and I think to me analytics is important, but you know, you got to have that physicality and Buffalo doesn't.
0: Yeah, Buffalo did not have that physicality. Last season we saw that in the snow against the Cincinnati Bengals, the game where they got beat up pretty bad in the AFC Divisional Round. Uh, one player that Buffalo has been linked to, though, is free agent wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins. Hopkins is going on the visit tour. He visited the Tennessee Titans, I believe. Is he in New England today, or was that visit yesterday? I think he What's came the in latest? last night. Okay, yeah. he went in last. I think he
2: night. came in last night to New England. Yeah, okay. I mean, look, I, I think he's going to take this tour. Right, right. We've said this all along on the podcast. He wants Odell Beckham's contract. Mm-hmm. You know, that's fifteen million. And look, he he doesn't practice. It's not necessarily a guy that, you know, he's a good player when he gets to the field, but all the things that it takes to become a good player, that that always isn't in his, what he wants to do. That doesn't mean, you know, that you got to tolerate that. I don't know how that works out. For New England, I don't see it as a fit, right? I mean, I know they're bringing him in and people link. Again, this is causation and correlation, right? People, because Belichick says great things about Hopkins, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to sign him right? (laughs) I mean, you know, the one thing is they signed Smith-Schuster, they've got Gusecki. I think Hopkins is an inside slot receiver now at this point in his career. When he lines up on the outside, that speed is never there. It's always a jump ball. So, I think this is going to go on. Tennessee brought him in. It's interesting. Somebody in the league told me Tennessee brought him in and they wine and dined him. The problem was they flew him on a Southwest flight to, 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 to Nashville. I don't think that went over so well. So, uh, you know, I mean if you're going to wine and dine somebody, don't put them on a Southwest flight. No disrespect <laughs> yeah. to Southwest because uh,
0: Southwest is always yeah. good. Yeah, They can sponsor if they want to.
2: <laughs> yeah, if they want to. But if you're going to wine and dine them, I think that. I, I think Ho- Hopkins is going to take time. I, I, to get okay. this Beckham contract, it's going to be a little bit he'll do a one year deal I think. Yeah. However, that one year deal has got to be of of a high number. Would New England pay that? Look, New England has huge cap room next year. They could certainly do it. Teams, but you're borrowing on next year's cap to do it for this year. Will he will he will he move the needle to to make them a you know, would he improve their team? Yeah. I, I actually think Dalvin Cook would improve the the Patriots team more than Hopkins.
0: Well let me give you one last question on Hopkins. You said it's not a fit, then why bring him in?
2: Well, I think they need to talk to him. I think it, they need to, you know, you bring players in to kind of collect thoughts. You don't know where this is going to go. Uh, you know, the one thing you do know is if his price comes down, you've spent time. In, and I think it kind of confirms. I think sometimes in in, in in talking about play, you want to confirm things mm. as much as you want to find
0: out things. Gotcha. Doing the homework. It's all part of the process. Doing the homework there versus just making an assumption and thinking that, hey, this is a guy that's not going to fit with us. Maybe you'd learn something and he actually does fit. So we will be tracking DeAndre Hopkins, maybe find a destination for Hopkins. But you mentioned Dalvin Cook. I want to ask you the latest on the Pro Bowl running back who is on the open market here. But we're going to take a quick break first. This is the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi. 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources.
2: You're listening to the GM shuffle with Michael Lombardi presented by DraftKings and V-CIN. is Femi Abebefe.
0: Before we get to Dalvin Cook, I want to ask you one last thing about DeAndre Hopkins. Where's he going next on his tour? Is, is is there anything else that's reported out there, or is it? I,
2: I haven't heard that. Okay. I don't know where he's going next. Right. Uh, you true, know, true. It's, it doesn't sound like. I think a lot of te- You know, like I've said before, you only take tours when you're trying to drive up interest, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's part of what he was he's doing is he's letting people know he's out there. But I don't know where he could possibly go next. I mean, it doesn't sound like Cleveland's in play. I mean, when mm-hmm. when you basically tell that he wants fifteen million. Essentially, that's what Beckham uh, got, 15, plus he gets a chance to go to 17. You know, it's going to scare some – there's not a lot of money out there in the open market right now. I mean, it's hard. Now, Dalvin Cook, you know, he thinks – his agent thinks he's going to get nine per year, Hmm. maybe 20 over two, maybe 19 over two. We'll see. But I think there is more of a market for Dalvin Cook because Dalvin Cook is younger. Mm-hmm. You know, he played 17 games last year. He can impact the run game and the pass game. And remember, the market for – I mean, Eckler just signed, and he can get up to 8, 8.2. Mm-hmm. All the backs that signed in free agency, the Miles Sanders, you know, the the, the the Montgomery, that they're in the 6 range, you know. And so, you know, I, I don't think – that he's going – I think nine is a pretty fair deal for him. He's better than Sanders. He's better than Montgomery.
0: So are we just at this stalemate here with the running back market? Is it going to be when one player signs, whether it's Dalvin Cook or Kareem Hunt or or whoever, maybe it's Saquon Bark from the Giants come to an agreement, is that going to then open the floodgates for the rest of these guys to kind of trickle in and start to make some deals?
2: No, because I think if somebody overpays for a back, I don't think it's going to change the the, the mindset of another team. Okay, I really don't. I I think this is one of those where teams are locked into what they want to pay. I mean, Minnesota goes and releases Cook because they got Madison. I mean, it's all about their cap, you know. It's their cap situation. They're trying to clean it up, and their GM is an analytical guy. He wants to do things, you know. I'm sure he feels like running backs are interchangeable. The difference between a a great one and a good one is how much, right, Mm -hmm. you know. And can you pay that? Like I've said many times, if you have a weapon in the backfield, I mean Cook averaged over ten yards a catch one season. I mean, that's what Keenan Allen gets, and Keenan Allen makes really good coin. So you, you, it depends on how you use the back. I mean, Barkley averaged, I think, at six poor, poor per catch last year. If you gotta get if you're gonna get paid huge money, you know, you gotta you gotta be a, a factor in the passing game. I get bar and Barkley makes a great point. He's like, look. I'm the focal point of the offense. I help you maneuver Daniel Jones around, and you pay Daniel Jones. I mean, he said it in a nice way, Mm -hmm. but he said essentially what we talked about, Femi, on this podcast when all the Giant fans went hysterical. I mean, they all went hysterical because I said, once you pay pay Daniel Jones, everybody else is going to look at that contract. Of course, they went hysterical. They said, I accused the Giants of having the disease of me. No, I said they potentially could have the disease of me.
0: Yeah. Well, give it a month or so. If there's still this impasse with Barkley and the Giants, they might start to turn on Saquon Barkley. <laughs> that's that's how these things go typically with fan bases. It's like this guy wants too much money now and all this stuff. But well, we'll keep our eyes on what's going on in the Meadowlands there. But last thing on Dalvin Cook, you mentioned the agent wants nine million, maybe twenty over two, something like that. Is that sort of money out there for Dalvin Cook, or is he going to have to eventually get down to seven and a half or eight or something? And, and which teams would be willing to play ball at that number?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know if it's out there. I mean, that's his agent is pretty convinced he can get that deal. And Cook's in no rush to sign. And so I, I think, to me, if his agent feels comfortable, it's out there. It must be out there. I don't know where it is. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said in the earlier block, I mean, New England has Stevenson as their running back. He's really a good player. They've player. got Pierre Strong, and they've got Kevin Harris behind him. Uh, you know, that the Robinson kid was a good player as a rookie down in Jacksonville. But once he got hurt, he lost that burst and acceleration in New England. Didn't even want to bring him to training camp because of that. So I think to me where this is headed is, you know, the, there's got to be a team in play. We'll see. I, like I said, I think Washington should be in play. No one seems to listen to that. Because they need a dynamic player, they need a skill player, especially running the West Coast offense with Eric Bieniemy. I mean, they need that guy. And you could say, well, you know, they have that in Gibson, and they have that in Rock. I don't. I, I think those guys are good. I don't think they're at this level of Cook.
0: Yeah, Cook is definitely a dynamic playmaker, and that's an offense that they have. The, they have the wide receivers, that's for sure, with McLaurin and. And uh, the, the guy who they drafted, was John Dotson, his name was escaping me there, but yeah, Dotson and McLaurin are really two dynamic wide receivers that could help out Sam Howell, the rookie there, or the second-year player, I should say, now Sam Howell, who's going to be the starting quarterback for the Washington Commanders. The Minnesota Vikings released Dalvin Cook. They also, with Kirk Cousins, have the situation brewing here that could come to a head a year from now because it sounds like there's not going to be any sort of contract restructure or extension for Kirk Cousins and the Vikings, meaning this season will be his free agent year. He's entering into Mm -hmm. free agency next season. Is this a situation to where we all kind of expected, hey, you said it earlier to this offseason, i got to give you credit, that you could go ahead and trade for Cousins if you want him. He's available if you want to go ahead and pick up the call. Nobody picked up the phone to go ahead and make that call there, but it looks like we're headed toward the last year for Kirk Cousins in the Twin Cities.
2: Well, I mean, look, you know, he, he voids, right? Mm-hmm. And he'll still carry debt with him when he voids, so that's that that he's gonna he's gonna affect next year's cap. But all these moves they're making today is to try to get their cap in some order for next season. You know they're trying to do that. I mean it's the same thing the Giants did this year. The Giants have spent a hard you know they're going through some things to get their cap in order, and they'll be in order next year. Teams have to do this, and Cousins has Cousins has been really the thorn in their side mm. of. Of, of being able to manipulate their cap. I mean, he's cost so much money, and you know, and he's not taking a discount. And next year, he should take a discount. And he'll say, I want to play, I want to play, I want to come back. We'll see what that number is.
0: Yeah, Everybody wants to come back at what price. <laughs> this is kind of the deal there. But for the Vikings, they drafted Jaron Hall out of BYU, the rookie. They have Nick Mullins also in that quarterback room. If they were to move on from Kirk Cousins, I mean – is it going with the developmental guy in Jaron Hall, who was a late-round pick? Or do they maybe go into the market next season and try to move up for one of these other quarterbacks? Like Caleb Williams, I know, is a guy that you're high on. Other people in the league high on him as well. Like, like Where do they go if they were to ultimately move from Cousins a year from now?
2: Yeah, I I mean that I think that remains to be seen. I think that's going to be that they're going to have to go through the process through the rookies, and you're going to have to get it in the draft. It depends on where they end up this season in the draft. Mm-hmm. It depends on how well Cousins plays this year, but I mean they're they're definitely looking. I mean Kellen Mann wasn't the answer when they picked him <laughs> in the third round. That was pretty clear.
0: Yeah, I mean that was really clear. I I, I I think a lot of fans right now are probably thinking that hey, is Minnesota maybe a potential quote-unquote tank candidate. Now, who knows if they go that route. Kwesi adafo their general manager, who you mentioned, he is very analytically driven, coming from the Cleveland Browns and that organization and all that. So, I, I think it's a team to kind of keep an eye on. I know they won 13 games last year, but based on the moves that they've made, I mean, Daniel Hunter is out there available if a team wants to go ahead and call on that. Like, I think this is a team that is, I think reshuffling and, and resetting the deck is the appropriate term, but maybe it even goes further than that and it ended up being a team that's looking toward the future and trying to acquire draft picks and just kind of selling people off.
2: I, I could see that. I think they're in, a, they're in a they're in a redecoration or a remodel phase.
0: No, 100% there. Uh, I know you wanted to hit on something that you listened to on your buddy Bill Simmons over at The Ringer, mm-hmm. his podcast. He always has a lot of great guests on, and he recently had former 76ers head coach Doc Rivers. Now, I haven't been able to listen to this podcast just yet. It's on my list of things to do here, but what was the gist of what Doc was saying in the pod with Bill Simmons?
2: Well, I I think what he said was pretty clear. I I think what he said was what Doc said. I mean, Bill asked some really good questions, and Bill asked him about the process and the culture, and Doc basically said he was hired by Elton Brand, which it was true before Daryl Morey came in, to change the culture because they've spent so much time losing, they didn't understand how to win. Mm -hmm. And because they gave players so much time off, Doc, according to Doc, he had a challenge to players to play, and he felt like he finally got Embiid to play. But I thought the most revealing thing outside of the process, losing doesn't work in terms of culture, which I've been saying for six years, and I think Doc vindicated all those words, is the other area where I felt like was the most critical thing he said was, again, he said, look, what Simmons said to him, what player needs to play next to Embiid? This is really important. And... Doc was political when he said, well, you need another type A player, but you need somebody who's going to be able to challenge Embiid. So really what he was saying was Embiid's not a great leader. Embiid doesn't really connect to his teammates. He doesn't have that same thing that Jokic has. And he needs somebody to inspire him and drive him. And it can't be P.J. Tucker because he's not a good enough player to do it. So it needs to be a, like when they had Butler, that's when he played the best. It wasn't because Butler played point or Butler was – it was because Butler was a good player who was, could, could drive Embiid and basically make Embiid become a better player. That's what they need. And that's ultimately what I've been saying because if he's your leader, he's never going to work hard enough. He's never going to be the guy like we see with Jokic is. I mean, Jokic understands what it is to be a true alpha male. Embiid's not that way. He's a secondary player. And I think that's, to me, what I've been saying all along. Is he talented? Oh, there's no doubt. Even Larry Brown said the same thing. Larry Brown said, look, I'm old school. I want him in the post. I want him in good enough shape that he can run 94 feet. He should get everybody in foul trouble. But because he goes from three-point line to three-point line, that doesn't always happen. And and Brown loves the kid. But I think you have to take away – the the, the veil a little bit here and we're seeing two coaches of Hall of Fame coaches, whether Doc's in the Hall of Fame or not, certainly his his regular season win total will get him there, (laughs) both say essentially the same thing. And that's the challenge for Philadelphia. It isn't about, do we sign a point, do we sign it off? It's about, can we find an alpha dog to make Embiid better?
0: It almost, to me, it sounds like Embiid as a talent is a primary kind of guy, but the mentality is almost like a secondary guy. And I think if you're a general manager, and I'm sure with you being a former general manager, also a big Sixers fan, you call up the 503 area code. Call up Portland, Oregon. There's a star player out there in Portland that might be on the move that doesn't want to be a part of a rebuild. Damian Lillard, alpha dog, type of mentality, a leader, has been the face of a franchise. Maybe you paired Damian Lillard with Joel Embiid.
2: Yeah. I mean, that might, that might work, you know, but I think that's it. I don't know if they have any assets to get Lillard. That's the problem. Yeah. I think the reason Bradley Beal's more in play is because Washington wants to take on exp- expiring contracts. They want to they destroy it. It's going to be interesting to see Washington because they've got this committee mentality. And you know how I feel about committees, right? You know, they've never dedicated a monument to a committee. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how they approach that in terms of their team
0: building. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be a really, really fascinating NBA offseason. And if none of this stuff happens and Harden ends up going to Houston or Phoenix or wherever, maybe it's Joel Embiid who's looking for a new home. And it's maybe it could be the New York Knicks. It could be somewhere else. I'm just speculating here. We're just throwing stuff on the wall. We'll see what happens. But the NBA offseason will be interesting. The NFL offseason is always interesting. But on the other side, we continue our literature and leadership series. Mark Grand Prix, president and general manager of the New York Red Bulls Major League Soccer team, joins us next here on the GM Show. Joining us now as we continue our literature and leadership series here on the GM Shuffle. This is going to be a real fun treat for us here. The former executive of the year in Major League Soccer. He has been the general manager and president of the New York Red Bull since 2014. It is Mark DeGrand Prix. Mark, we appreciate you joining us here on the podcast. Big fan of the show is what it sounds like as well. So we appreciate you uh, being a supporter of the GM Shuffle. But how are we doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Femi. This is going to be a fun,
1: fun time.
2: Uh, Mark, we want you to know we we, we didn't have you on the show because you like the show. So we we, uh, appreciate that. That's an added bonus for us. But. I, I like to start off with uh, a little bit of of your background in terms of how you developed yourself as a leader I, I know you were your grandfather was the the head of the Canadian business uh, the, the chairman of the board of, of Bell of Bell Canada and uh, known throughout Canada as the simplifier the architect and the strategist which are all great qualities to have as a leader so talk, talk about your your grandfather Jean I think it's, it's Jean day Prix
1: Yep. Yeah. That's a gr- great, I, I, great.
2: I mess up names all the time, Mark. So I'm very cautious about And, and French and me are, are probably never going to go together very well, but anyway, so I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to make a
1: mistake there. Don't worry about it. Ever. I've, it's been, it's been pronounced many different ways and it's all good at the end of the day. Yes. That's a great question, Michael. My grandfather, you know, played a really or I mean, to this day, uh, he just passed away a year ago at 100 years old. Um, he, he played an important role in my development as an indiv- individual and a leader. And uh, I'll share this story with you guys. Um, when we were celebrating his 100th birthday, I asked him to to give me words I could share back with my son who wasn't there on that day. Uh, he was heading off to college as a freshman. I said, what do, what do you want to share with Tyler? that he needs to take with him for the rest of his life. And he said, same thing I've told you years ago, you gotta lead with love. Uh, And you've gotta, you know, make sure that whenever you're taking on a new endeavor, a new team or leading a team, you really find care in people. You find who they are, you find out who they are, what they're about, um, where they come from, and you get to know them. And I saw that come to life as a young child a few times I went to the office, he knew everyone's name in the office and he's leading a, a billion dollar business in Canada. Uh, he treated everyone as if they were family um, and he had very high standards in terms of the way he operated. I would have described them as a tough and caring. And I think that's some things that I've taken with him. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's the core of how I lead. And I think it's it's helped me get to where I am, right? With a little bit of luck along the way and the right timing. Um, It comes down to the right people, the right culture, having the right mission and vision, and as a leader always being able to think ahead to prepare the team for what may be coming right? and make sure they have the resources and uh, the freedom to do what they need to do with the business that they run eventually. But it's about the people, and that's how how you succeed.
0: That's really interesting because that kind of answers one of the questions that I have was how do you kind of get people to buy in, like, what do you do from a day to day standpoint there? And you talk about leading with love. It's almost in a sense where you're trying to get people to buy into your message, but you also have to buy into those people. Otherwise you're just, your message is going to ring hollow. Correct.
1: No, oh, that's another great point. Femi, I think it's really important. And, and when I came back to the team in 2014 here, there was, I'd say a, um, a lack of direction and clarity on where we were going. Uh, so. I engaged a lot of folks in the organization to define where we are going, right? What what would be our mission as a club? What would be our our vision? And what kind of plan would we lay out to get to where we want to go? And that's part of engaging the organization. And you have to be vulnerable, right? You have to – everyone needs to know that you don't have all the answers and never proclaimed I did, and I still don't. But I've surrounded myself with really, really smart people a group of diverse folks who have different opinions, different points of views, different experiences, and that helps us make the right decision and become better. Uh, But at the end of the day, I mean, I think it's really important as the leader that you really focus on getting to know everyone in the organization, right? Uh, And and I made a point of meeting with everyone when I came back here in 2014. Uh, I know everyone by name. Uh, I know when their birthdays are. At the end of every year, I, I send them a handwritten note Thanking them for their contribution to the club. Right. Uh, And those are the little things I think that make a difference that I I drew from my my, my grandfather, my father uh, and other leaders. I've been around throughout the years.
2: You know, when I go out to Mark, when I go out to the South Point out in Las Vegas, where we have a studio, uh, the owner of the South Point is a a tremendous man. His name is Michael Gon. And he sounds very much like your grandfather. Michael gone on Thursday at the restaurant there. will have eight or nine employees have lunch with him. And mm-hmm. he constantly is asking them about what they can do about their jobs. He knows their names. He knows their backgrounds. And that engagement really grounds him within his own building. And it's the reason why the South Point is so successful. And. I just finished a book called Belonging by Owen Eastwood. And it kind of lines with this too, because Eastwood talks about how do you create a sense of belonging? Most people want to be part of something bigger than themselves, right? And so how do you create the us versus I? And what what your grandfather did was remarkable. Have you had any struggles with, you know, because you're dealing with so many different cultures of unifying everybody into that us environment?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. It's a it's a big challenge in soccer uh, across the the different cultures we bring in and the 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 front office the sporting staff to making sure everyone's aligned behind that mission and being part of something bigger than themselves. Even internally here, when we talk about who we are, we're not just a soccer team that's trying to win games. Right? That's that's two cliches, prototypical in sports. Yes, we want to win games. We want to win a championship. But ultimately, our purpose is to help develop, inspire, and engage the local community, right, through the game of soccer. And if we do that well on the pitch, off the pitch, that's when we start winning. And ultimately, yes, winning the MLS Cup is going to drive a ton of engagement and inspire the local community. But all our all our efforts are geared towards that. And that means engaging the players to understand what they have to do in the community to drive engagement and obviously performing on the pitch, how important that is. But from uh, Maria, who cleans the building with Israel every day, uh, for the staff and, and our, our guests when they come on game days, they understand their role in the organization, how they drive that experience, and it can drive that, that engagement. And, and they're committed to make sure this place is the safest and cleanest building we have. And it's really uh, driving that message down and making sure everyone understands it clearly. And as a leader, my job is to reinforce that message consistently wherever and whenever I can with the staff and to your point, it's meeting with a smaller group uh, across the organization. We call them sensing sessions here where everyone comes in and it's a small group, eight to ten folks, and they can ask me about anything. And I ask them to give me feedback on how I'm doing, how the leadership team is doing and what can we do better to drive deeper engagement across the
0: organization. You know, Michael mentioned it earlier just in this interview here, how you grew up in Canada, and for, I'm assuming for a lot of people who grew up in Canada, they play hockey, as you did. So I think in doing our research, it was really cool to kind of figure out your path to the MLS, but I want you to share with our audience who might not be familiar with your story, how did you go from growing up playing hockey to an executive role now in Major League Soccer? Trust me, it's it's uh, I
1: think it's the... A running joke back home in Canada. How did a a young man who loved hockey, played hockey all his life, played college, played baseball and hockey and never really played soccer? I played some indoor soccer when it was tiny uh, on a, you know, on a rink in the summer when there was no ice. That was about it. So I was fortunate to be one of the first employees at Red Bull in North America uh, on the canned sales side, on the beverage side uh, in the late 90s. And for about ten years or so, or a little less seven years, I was managing that business and, and built it out in the East Coast. And in 2006, when our owner bought the, the Metro Stars, um, I was I mentioned luck earlier. I was fortunate enough to be in the office when he came in, uh, and no one else was in there. And he just said to me, "All right, let's go. We're going to go to New York City." And I'm like, "Okay, why are we going to New York City?" And he just said, "Well, we're going to go buy the Metro Stars." That that sank in. I'm like, okay, I I got a day job here. I gotta I gotta sell your cans and, and make sure we keep driving the business. And uh, once the transaction was done, he said, listen, go inform the guys at the Metro Stars that we bought them. And for the next 30 days, I want you to make sure that when I come back for our first game, the Red Bulls are playing. So that's how my my sort of journey in soccer started. Uh, and I I made no bones about it with the owner. I'd never been played soccer, none of that gave me a rule book to figure this out. I'll be back in 30 days and I expect the Red Bulls to be playing and, and something I didn't think was possible. We we made it happen. So that's how I
2: I think that's, that, that, that's, that to me is the reason why we wanted to have you on today is because, you know, sports and business, there's an intersection. It's really comes mm -hmm. down to the same thing. It comes down to culture, a sense of belonging first. Right. And, Mm -hmm. You have to have that. And then you have a culture and then you have people that adapt to the culture. So you just recently made a coaching change, right? What went through your mindset on why you wanted to make a change? And then what did you look for in terms of finding somebody that could then deliver
1: the change you needed? It's a great question. When you think about the decisions you make when you're making a coaching change or a, a, a staffing change internally in the front office whatever it may be you 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 just hit it michael it comes down to i'd rather invest in someone who is going to champion and believe in our culture and fits our culture than someone who is highly skilled and may maybe have more experience or more talented in certain areas cuz the intangible of the character and the culture belief and the buy-in and the engagement, to me, drives ultimate long-term success. Um, and those are the, the variables we thought about during this this last transition. And we knew that the assistant coach that we had in-house could could potentially fill that role, and he's proven us right uh, since we've made that decision. So um, to me, it comes down to that person sharing the similar values we have as an organization, as an individuals in the organization. Uh, Believing in where we want to go in that culture and being able to champion that culture and really drive deep
0: engagement with the team and the players and making them believe also. Well, I want to follow up on that, Mark, there, because I think that really intersects all aspects of life, whether it's you have a job in business or you have a job in the medical field or a job in sports. like Why do you think it is to where oftentimes organizations overlook those traits and kind of just look at the specific, oh, what's the skill? What's the resume? What does this look like? Like, why do you think people overlook this, the traits that you would want to that would be able to actually fit into a culture and go more towards resume build type of stuff? Uh, that's a great point, Femi. I think there's a reluctance,
1: there's sort of a comfort zone to look at a resume, experience skill set, and say, okay, this person's going to be able to do the job and deliver some results. And that's an easy decision to make when you look on paper, you go through the interview process, and you assess skill and talent. The intangible, to me, that is much more important in that process is understanding the individual. Where are they from? from, What they believe in? As I said a minute ago, do they share those same values we do as an organization? Uh, Can they help us elevate the culture and make it more meaningful and powerful and engaging? That's an intangible and something you can't measure that some folks are uncomfortable going there and making that hard decision. Um, And we have these debates in here oftentimes. We're we're recruiting a new head of HR right now. And there's some folks who look at the resume and say, oh, experience X, Y, and Z, much stronger than candidate B for X, Y, and Z reasons. And then you've got to push and probe about their thoughts on the personality, the values of these individuals. And I think to me, it's the difficult part of the job. Uh, and also, over the last few years, you've seen more of a, a shift towards thinking about those intangible uh, characteristics of individuals. And to me, it comes down to character, ultimately, and their their beliefs and their values and where they grew up. You know, one of the questions I ask is, don't tell me about resume. Tell me any everything that's not on the resume about who you are everything that occurred before you went to college and you could write on your resume. I want to know who you are and where you grew up. And, you know, people who have been through tough times are more resilient. You learn through those conversations where they've been and what they value. And those are the things I think really make a big difference at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. And so your owner, you're working for Red Bull. Your owner comes in and said, we bought a soccer team. Were you... A little intimidated by how you thought soccer, the execution of soccer to win America, football as they call it, how the game needed to be played in order for the Red Bulls to become a great team. Well, understanding we have to build a culture, but how to play, you know, was that something that worried you because you hadn't had a background in soccer?
1: A hundred percent. I mean, I, I that's where when we talk about surrounding each other with people who know what they're doing and are smarter than you or are, have different experiences, that's where it really became important to me and valuable to the organization. Defining how we would play would have to be part of our culture and our identity. Uh, and it's very much a, a foundational pillar of how what we look for in players and staff because we don't want the club to be defined by one coach who comes in brings in his own culture, leaves, right? The, we all know coaches are going to change. We want to make sure that the culture remains and the values and the way we play and all those things are going to be part of that fabric and DNA. Um, so I relied on experts uh, wholeheartedly to make those decisions and learn from them a ton uh, throughout the years to, to be able to uh, to help us get to where we are today. Obviously, we haven't won the big one yet, Michael, but it's as I keep reminding everyone, there's one team every year. Uh, and if we measure our success every year based on that, not winning that final game, uh, I don't think it's fair to the 160 people who work in this organization because there's a lot of good work happening um, and a lot of
0: things have to align for us to win that final game. Well, you can give yourself some credit. You guys have made the playoffs every single year since you've been there. You know, <laughs> it's, you haven't won the big one yet, but you've made the postseason. Uh, and that and kind of follows to my next question here is that I think one of the trickier things is to get people to buy in when the results aren't immediate. And I know that you guys are chasing the MLS Cup. That's obviously the holy grail of what you want to accomplish there. But can leadership and can these philosophies be, I guess, brought into an organization without having those results immediately? Because eventually people are going to say, all right, well, we're not having the success that we want, so why should we be listening?
2: Mm
0: -hmm. That's a great question. I think you have to, as
1: I just said, you have to highlight all the, the wins along the way. The things that change, the things that improve, the constant progress. We talk about being one percent better every every day here, and we highlight all the successes we have, other than on the pitch, to show that we're going in the right direction, uh, and ultimately getting to the playoffs. To your point, Femi, thirteen years in a row, it's consistent excellence over 34 matches, and now is how do we fine tune. Uh, the ingredients on the pitch and with the team to make sure we, we have more success in this tournament at the end of the year, but anywhere else in the world, you know, over the last 14 years, we've won three supporter shields. Uh, so it's uh it's a pretty consistently successful soccer organization. And in Europe, we would have been crowned champions three times actually over the last 10 years since 2013. So, that would be considered a really good run. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, in the U.S., there's a tournament and there's a cup, uh, but we're we're fine tuning, and everyone understands that. You know, when you look at goals, you're not always going to reach them, and you're going to fail and learn, and grow from those. And that's really important to remind everyone in the organization. We're going to set goals. We're going to be aspirational. We're, we're going to want to hit some high targets. We may not get there every year, but we're going to learn from not getting to where we're going to go, and we're going to continue to get better. Where I really get, I'd say, more in, more intense and, and strict and, and disciplined is around standards and the way we behave as an organization, right? How we act every day. Those are sort of non-negotiables for us in this organization. Mm. You know, If you don't put the team first, you don't make decisions in the best interest of the team, if you don't ask teammates if they need help every day, those are things we will not be flexible around. That's part of our culture and our DNA, and that's when we hold people accountable and there's consequences. On the goal side, there's going to be consequences eventually, but we need to learn and grow. If we can continue to show that, then we'll be successful.
2: Yeah, I mean, that you see that as your job. You see that as the standard of excellence uh, perf, uh, m- uh, evaluator. I mean, to me, just listening to you, you understand that you have to hold people accountable, and that goes for yourself and everybody else in the organization. So a- as you, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is team building. So the players matter and the player's character matters. So when you're setting up this organization, did you go to the personnel department and say these are the kind of people we want and this is what we're looking for and then how does that relate how do you manage that relationship because in pro football, you know, when the team's not doing well It's the the players are good. The coach thinks, or the coach thinks the players think it's that constant battle back and forth. How do you navigate that from the uh, from your seat in terms of standards?
1: So when you think it's a great question, Michael, when we think about who's involved in those decision in our our head of sport, our sporting directors, our scouts, they all understand the standards we have, what we look for in player, what we expect in players. and they have a very detailed, diligent system to make sure there's always gonna be error, right? You're not gonna hit, you're not gonna bat a thousand every season, you're gonna make mistakes, you're gonna learn, but we wanna minimize that risk through this process and system and the standards we've set up. And those folks, I have full trust and uh, belief in them that they're constantly holding themselves to the right standards. And holding themselves accountable against those standards to make sure that whatever we, whoever we bring in or coach, assistant coach or players, fit within those, those uh, the standards we have. And if they don't, then we make changes.
2: Yeah. I, I, I you know, think, it's yeah. funny. Timmy. I would jump in for a second. Oh, no you problem. know, when you when you look at the New New Zealand All Blacks, they have 15. 15- principles what they call standards right and so everybody in the organization knows these these principles you know sweep the shed go for the gap play with a purpose pass the ball create a learning environment you know no dickheads no assholes you know embrace expectations train to win keep a blue head know thyself invent your own language sacrifice you know have rituals to actualization be a good ancestor and write your own legacy so they they kind of that's their job that's who they are and I think when you have standards you that, that's who you become especially how did you deal with you didn't have a history you know the all blacks wear that fern on their chest and they say you know we've worn this to earn that to wear this fern you have to represent who we are going back
1: 50 years how did you compensate for the lack of history It came through some of the players we brought in early on who set those standards. Uh, I'd mentioned Juan Pablo Angel, who was one of the, I think, our second designated player back in 2007. He came in and really helped us set the right standards for the organization on the sporting side, for the young players, our academy. We were one of the first teams who had an academy uh, back in 2006. Love that. Love that. Love that. That player helped us set a standard that's it's still here. Juan Pablo has long left the club. He went to finish his career in L.A. He's now working for another team. But those standards that he helped to set are still living and breathing here. And you can feel him in the building. Uh, and it's now any new employee gets it when they walk in and they're they. they it's sort of I don't want to say by osmosis, but they understand it it's on paper, they see it and they know where they're going. And it's interesting, Michael, you mentioned the all blacks because every new employee when they come in here gets a book from me and it, that's the book they get to read.
2: That's great. I love that. I, I think to me that you see that that is the way, Mark, the way you approach your job. And I think this is really critical for coaches too, is you approach your job as the teacher of the culture, right? You know, everybody just assume cultures like carpet. It just gets laid and it stays there whereas you see it as it's your job to do that. And that's very Belichickian in the sense that
1: if you don't work on it every day, it's going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. It's it's written in front of me at my desk. Uh, that's my number one job is to manage the culture, make sure we have the right folks within the organization who live it, breathe it every day. And as I said earlier, when we started the conversation, it's about reinforcing it, communicating it as often as I can. Uh, I don't think we we don't have an all staff where I talk about the culture or some teammates that exemplified the culture over the last 30 days. Um, And that is my number one job as the leader of the organization. I think for any leader in any organization, that is their priority to make sure that culture and those standards are upheld every day. And I'd like to say that that's why we've made the playoffs 13 years in a row. And we're going to keep going and we're eventually going to get
0: to where we want to be and we'll be the last one standing eventually. I want to get to more in Major League Soccer and everything with you guys do, but I want to kind of veer off to some of the more personal side of things because I think one thing that's really cool and could be really valuable for a lot of our listeners is that, hey, we're all learning how to lead at work, but what about away from work? What about at home, within your family? Like, How does your leadership style change? And maybe it doesn't change, but does it change when you go from all right, I'm president and general manager to the New York Red Bulls to when you go home, I'm the father, I'm a husband. Like, How does that kind of change? Or is there maybe some intersection there as well? Uh, there's definitely, I think, you know, you, you both know you're in
1: sports. It it comes home with you ultimately. Uh, but I, I draw a lot from my wife who's been uh, the backbone of our family. We have two great kids, one who's in college and a young uh, girl who's 15, Julia, who's in a special needs school in New Jersey here. Um, What I've drawn from my family, Femi, is uh, the ability to be resilient, right? Uh, Our daughter was born with uh, disabilities and she's been through, uh, it's been a challenging life for her and it's going to be. But through her, I've found hope, I've found resilience and I've found belief. And I'll give you an example of this and how my family has influenced my resilience and grit A normal child learns to ride a bike, you know, by the age of five, and it takes him a few tries, get up and down. My daughter kept trying for eight years to ride a bike and never gave up. And finally, the eighth year, during the COVID year, everything happens for a reason. I'm at home in my home office, and she's outside trying, falling, getting back up, trying, and she finally got it. Uh, And if she can keep going for eight years to learn how to pedal a two-wheel bicycle i mean that's resilience that's intuitiveness not giving up and that is something i've learned from my family from my son who, who's who's been there helping us manage this who's been patient he's been caring uh, loving and he's made our lives easier by really taking care of himself right and taking care of his his education his his sports career in high school and now in college he's doing phenomenal because he knows that we don't have to worry about him and he made sure we didn't have to worry about him. Uh, and and when you think about holding each other accountable in an organization is, you know, I looked to my left and right, my teammates better be taking care of their jobs. So I don't have to worry about it. And I'm going to remind them if they're not, but our son made sure he took care of himself and did everything the right way. Uh, so he wasn't a burden on us. Um, and he went through some tough times when he was 12 years old, we almost lost him, And, uh, Again, he fought through it, and it was that resilience in both our kids that we've had, and my wife for for raising two amazing kids, uh, has helped me become a better leader. Right, uh, communication at home, opening that up, being vulnerable, all those things have translated to work, and hopefully have made me a better leader along the way.
2: Well, she's that's an incredible story, Mark. I mean, she sounds like a, a lesson in competitive stamina every single day. I mean, that that's powerful. When you have that reminder every single day in front of you uh, for, from someone else to you, it, it, it's a powerful lesson. I, I wanted to ask you, all these things we talk about today are great. And, and I, I believe in every one of them wholeheartedly. But if the owner doesn't believe in this, there's chaos and, and did you get the owner of the Red Bulls to buy into this immediately, or was this part of his DNA? Because some owners will say, I want to do this, but he never. But, they, but once it gets hard, they bail. Once the media gets on them, they bail. So talk about how your owner has allowed you to do what you need to do. Great cultures that I've seen in sports really is about the owner's willingness to allow it to establish. Pat Riley in Miami, Belichick in New England, Kraft allows it to establish, you know,
1: same thing in Miami. Talk about your owner. I think that's a that's a great question. The relationship I had with him being one of the first employees to to help launch Red Bull in North America. I can't say I was close to him, but I got to know him. I was in meetings with him. And when we bought the team, I got much closer to him because I had direct relationship. He built everything. I wanted to instill here is similar to the beliefs he had and how he built Red Bull, the brand. Um, so it was an easy conversation with him. And you talk about owners who bail out. He's been consistent every year. We've reinvested. We've invested and we've kept going and we've we've doubled down at times. And his commitment to seeing this team succeed ultimately has never wavered. Unfortunately, we lost him last year. But his son is now uh, leading the organization and a board, and they're going to make sure that his legacy continues on. And uh, the values
0: I shared with this organization were part of the values our owner has, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go here, Mark, we got to ask you the biggest news in the MLS. I mean, Lionel Messi, arguably the greatest player in the history of the sport, joining Inter Miami. I mean, what does that do for just the spotlight on Major League Soccer? Obviously, it's a sport that almost approaching 30 years here in a couple of years that it's been in our in our country. I mean, what does that do for the sport and for you guys as well as competitors? I mean, this kind of continues the arms race of some of these international superstars coming over here to the States. What a tremendous
1: signing by Miami, right? It's, it's amazing for the league. You saw what it did. I'm watching the NBA Finals, the pregame show, and they're talking about uh, the Heat. Uh, the Pan- Panthers in the finals and then Messi in Miami, right? That would have never happened in the MLS. That would have never happened. Uh, the MLS being talked about during the NBA final. So th- the interest we got in the game instantly was sold out in a matter of minutes here locally uh, and every away game and their home games are all sold out. I think it elevates the platform for MLS to become uh, relevant. Awareness across the globe. You're going to see The Apple subscriptions skyrocket around the globe because everyone's going to want to see Messi in his last few years. Um, And it also, to your point, Femi, it's going to put more pressure on all the owners to continue to invest in the product to make sure we keep elevating the talent that's on the pitch in MLS, right? And we have the World Cup coming here in a few years. This is just another great step in us getting better, continue to invest in our product and become much more relevant on a global platform and ultimately that's what we want to be and in north america we want to be in the top 4 at some point and we're going to get closer and messi's going to help us get there
2: yeah before we let you go i want to know three we mentioned legacy which is an incredible book uh, two other books that you absolutely have changed your leadership style and then what are what books are you currently reading right now
1: Great question. Right now I'm, I'm reading, uh, let them lead it's by John Bacon. It's literally a high school hockey coach in Michigan that talks about his story of becoming a coach of a team that was underperforming and then becoming, uh, I I think they became state of their champions of their sectional, but the process he went through to get there. So I, that's what I'm reading right now. It's a great book. I'm listening to Luke Russert's book as well. Um, books that have influenced me boys in the boat is one that I've really enjoyed and that oh, I've, I've yeah, shared with yeah. the, my leadership team over the years. Really good book about, I mean, the importance of being in sync as a team, right? You, you can't get more in sync than on a, a, a boat where you're rowing together. If one person is not in sync, you can't get there. And it, it really defines teamwork communication and being together. So I love that book. One that everyone should read that I've reread recently, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I tell it's a simple book, but it's an important book because at the end of the day, it all comes down to relationships. Um, So those two are important. And then um, I would say also, uh, you know, one that I I really enjoyed was the the Bill Walsh book, right? The score will take care of itself. Uh, That's important. And I
0: love the E. O. O'Connor book on Bill Belichick as well. That's awesome stuff there. I think this has been a really fun conversation, Mark. We appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the GM Mark, Shuffle. Thank you. I'm a Red I mean, Bull
2: fan now. I promise yes. you that. That's awesome. Love it. Appreciate yeah, I, I, it. Thanks
0: for having me. Uh, this has been really a pleasure. I'm, I'm a Seattle guy. Obviously, I root for the Sounders. But if they're not playing the Sounders, I will be rooting for the New York Red Bulls. There, you guys, in the pursuit uh, of the elusive MLS Cup. Now, it's going to be a lot of fun tracking you guys the rest of the season. If there's a lesson that's to be learned lead with love and that's what we're going to do here on the gm shuffle podcast mark the grand prix we appreciate you taking the time to join us here that does it for this edition of the gm shuffle thank you to our producer elliott bowman with us on the ones and twos thank you to draft kings thank you to v's and thank you to you michael once again thank you to mark the grand prix and we will talk to you guys on monday